0: Let me invite you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Ecclesiastes. And if you don't have a Bible with you, there's a blue one on the seat in front of you that you're welcome to use. You're welcome to keep that one if you don't have a Bible. We'd love to give that to you as our gift. If you're using one of the blue Bibles, you can find our passage on page 620. Otherwise, just turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 7. We're going to be looking at verses 15 to 29 this morning. If you're just joining us, uh, we didn't just plop down here. We've been walking through this book from the beginning, which is what we, we like to do here. We value the whole counsel of God, and so we try not to skip around, but work our way through books so that we can hear all that God has to say to us. So Ecclesiastes chapter 7, starting in verse 15. Hear the word of the Lord. In my vain life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous, and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand. For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man, more than ten rulers who are in a city. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise. But it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep. Very deep. Who can find it out? I turned my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things. And to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, in which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. See, this alone I found that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. This is the word of the Lord. Well, this morning I want to tell you about one thing I love and one thing I hate. I love vending machines and I hate board games. Hear me out, Eric. This is not against you. We played some games the other night. And the reason I love vending machines is the reason I hate board games. Here's why. I love vending machines because you can look at all the options. You can see everything that's there, all the possibilities. Decide which one you like best, and when you put in the right amount of money and you push the right buttons, you get the thing you wanted. That's how they work. In case you aren't familiar with vending machines, you put in the right money, push the right buttons, you get what you wanted. I love that. It's simple, it's straightforward, and I'm in control, right? But Here's the thing about board games at least some of them. I'm thinking mainly about games that involve what we call chance where you roll the dice or you draw a card or something like that. When you play games like that first of all you can't see all the options. You can't, you don't know all the ways things might go in the game. You don't know what the other players are thinking, what cards in their hands, what cards gonna turn up next or what the dice is gonna do. And then When you figure out what you want to happen, you do all the right things. You make all the right moves, use all the right strategy. But guess what? Sometimes it doesn't work. Now, sometimes it does, which I think makes it even more frustrating because you just can't tell the outcome of the game isn't determined by doing the right things. That drives me crazy because there are other factors that are out of my control. Vending machine, put in the right money, push the right buttons, I get what I want. Games, do the right things, play by the right rules, and sometimes I still lose. Now, when it comes to life, many of us tend to think of it more like the vending machine, I think. We think, if I just do the right things, if I just push the right buttons, make the right choices, then life is supposed to go the way I want. And sometimes, even as Christians, we can be guilty of this. We think, I go to church, I read my Bible, I even serve with the kids. I pushed all the right buttons so I should get the things I want from life. An easy marriage, healthy body, good job. But oftentimes, we push all the right buttons and life doesn't go the way we want it to. On the board of life, you push G5. And instead of a new grandchild, you get a cancer diagnosis. You push B7, but instead of the raise you were hoping for, you get laid off. See, the reality is that life is not like a vending machine. In fact, it's far more like a board game. Where no matter what moves we make, at the end of the day, what happens is ultimately out of our control. The question for us this morning is, What do we do with that? How do we respond to that reality that sometimes bad things happen to good people? And sometimes the wicked seem to do pretty well. That's what our preacher is wrestling with in the passage this morning. And as we go through it, he's going to invite us into his thinking. And he wants to teach us about real wisdom, real righteousness, and our real problems. So that's why I called the sermon Get Real, because we're going to get real. So here's our outline this morning. In verses 15 to 18, he's going to show us the road of real righteousness. Then in 19 to 24, we're going to see the real wisdom of recognizing our need. And then in verses 25 to 29, he's going to find the real problem of life. Okay, so that's where we're going. So let's first look at the problem we see in our passage. So what is this paradox of life that the preacher is struggling with? Look at verse 15. He says, in my vain life, I've seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. So that's the problem. The preacher looks around. He says, I've seen it all. And what I've seen when I've looked around is something that just isn't right. I've seen a righteous man die young, even though he's living righteously. And I've seen a wicked man live a nice long life, even though he's living an evil life. And when he sees this, it creates a tension in him. And I'm guessing it creates the same tension in a lot of us. It feels unfair. I mean it doesn't seem like what we would expect if if a good God is ruling over all things shouldn't everything go well for the righteous as a as a reward and shouldn't the wicked suffer because they refuse to obey him and yet often we see the opposite how many times have you gone to the funeral of some godly brother or sister who died at a young age or you hear about a young missionary who was tragically killed. Whenever we hear this, it, does, it just feels wrong. After all, didn't God promise that if we did what he said, we'd live long lives? In fact, listen to Deuteronomy 5.33. It says, You shall walk in the way that the Lord your God has commanded you, that you may live, and it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land that you shall possess." live go well live long and there's lots of places in the bible that tell us that when we keep the law it leads to long life and yet it doesn't always happen the way we think that that should sometimes god's people die young while the wicked live to old age and it's been this way since genesis 4 with cain and abel right this isn't a new phenomenon Abel was righteous, and yet he was killed for living righteously. But wicked Cain, the one who killed his brother, he got to live a nice long life. Or fast forward, what about Jesus, who died in his early 30s? What better proof could we have that living a righteous life does not guarantee that you won't die young? So now comes that big question. What do we do with this reality? And here in verses 15 to 18, the preacher's gonna describe two dangers, two ways we can go wrong in responding, and then he's gonna show us the road of real righteousness. So the picture I want you to have in mind is you're up high in the mountains, and there's this narrow little bridge that's going between two peaks. And if you go off to one side, there's a big drop-off. But if you go too far to the other way, An equally big drop-off. So the only way through this cavern is to stick to the road tightly. Okay, so let's look at these two dangers first. Look first at the danger on one side in verse 16. He says, Be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Now, this isn't what it sounds like at first. Some of you are thinking, hold on, did the Bible just tell us to not be too righteous? Like, be good, just don't be too good. Now, like don't get carried away, just moderately do what God says, but don't, don't go all out. I bet you've never heard that in church before. Well, I want you to rest assured you're not hearing that in this church either. So then what does it mean to be Overly righteous. And that word is really important. He says, overly righteous. Keep in mind that he's talking about one possible response to that problem where he saw righteous dying young and wicked living long. So he's saying, when that happens, one way we're tempted, some people are tempted to respond by trying harder. They think, okay, well, I saw the righteous. Maybe they just weren't righteous enough. Maybe that's what it was. So so they try even harder to be good. Try even harder to do the right things because they're still convinced that life is like that vending machine and they're in control. They must not have pushed the right buttons or put in the right amount of money. That's why they died young. So I'm gonna make sure I put in all the right stuff. If I can put in enough good behavior and enough righteous works, God will have to give me a good life. The vending machine has to give it out. Or if things are going hard in their lives, They'll just assume, oh, God must be punishing me because I'm not being righteous enough. So same thing. I'm going to try harder. I, I, I've got to just be more righteous. I've got to get more wisdom. And notice here that righteousness and wisdom are linked in our passage. So he's not talking about two things. He's talking about one. And that's going to be important as we go through the whole passage. Righteous living and wise living are the same. And so the first response to this paradox we saw in verse 15 He says some people will just try to learn more, study the Bible more intensely, be wiser, do more good things, try harder. The problem is that these people are trusting the things they do to protect them. They're not looking to God. They're looking to their own efforts to be wise or be righteous. We might even call this self-righteousness. They're counting on the good life they live to make them right with God they think what's going to make me right with God they start listing off their accomplishments well I do this I do this I don't do that I don't do that but the preacher says this is a dangerous path why is it dangerous because it ultimately leads to destruction we know from Proverbs there's a way that seems right to a man they think God this is right this feels good if, if I do the right things I'll get what I want the way that seems right to a man but in the end It leads to death. He's saying some people will work themselves into the ground, trying harder, doing more, and ultimately still be destroyed because we're trusting our own righteousness. Here's the thing. When people live this way, they start to think God owes them. Remember, it's the vending machine mentality. You get upset when the machine doesn't kick out because you're like, I did the right thing. I put in the right amount of money. I push the right button. Therefore, if I don't get the thing I wanted, I feel I'm entitled to be mad. Well, in the same way, we start to think, look, God, I put in the right actions. I did all the right things. I read my Bible every day last week. I prayed. I talked to some people about you. I go to church every week. I did all the right things. Now, you're supposed to give me this, but you didn't. I have a right to be mad. The preacher warns us not to go that way because it will lead to destruction. But now that's only one side of our bridge. He says, no, no, there's a danger on the other side as well because when some people see that doing the right things won't guarantee them a long and prosperous life, so some of them try harder, but he says another group, well, they just quit even trying to do what's right. I mean, why bother? If the righteous are gonna die young, Let's just dive headlong into wickedness. Look at verse 17. Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? Now, again, I just want to clarify when he says, be not overly wicked. Some of you are like, okay, oh, that's reasonable. He's not saying it's okay to be just a little wicked. All right, that's not permission. He's cautioning us against Looking at the success of the wicked people in the world and saying, huh, seems to be working for them. I bet it would work for me too. Forget all this righteousness stuff. Wickedness is what works. When you get there, you just plunge further and further into sin, joining the wicked in the way they're living so that you can have what they have. And again... One of the things I love about the Bible is it helps us realize all these things that you and I struggle with and feel, they're nothing new. This is in your Bibles. This is in Psalm 73. I'm going to summarize it for you, but you should go back and read it later. There the Psalm writer admits, this is what it says. He says, as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had almost slipped. What does he mean? For I was envious of the arrogant. When I saw the prosperity of the wicked, he said, they're always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. Do you hear him? He's saying, man, things are going well for them. They're comfortable. They're always getting more money. Like they have what I want. And so he, do you hear that all in vain? He said, what was it worth? What was it for? All this doing the right thing, trying to follow God. And I just wonder this morning, have you ever felt that? Have you ever felt jealous of the people who have no regard for God, but seem to have everything else? Have you ever had that little nagging thought in the back of your mind that you know you shouldn't have, but man, it's there, that seems to say, is this worth it? I mean, is all this trying to live for Jesus... Just a big waste? Is living the way God calls us to all in vain? Well, the preacher brings it up because he wants to warn us. That path is also a dead end. Because things aren't as good as they might seem for the wicked. If you read Psalm 73, that's the, turn, the turning point. What the psalmist finds out is he sees the end of the wicked. He sees where they're headed. Here's what he says about the wicked. The same ones that he was jealous of a moment ago. He says, oh, truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment. And it changes his perspective. But when people people reject God's ways and live in sin, they might seem to be doing well now but their end is ruin and destruction eventually they will face the god they've rejected but the preacher here he's also got another point he's not just thinking one day when they meet god he's actually thinking of life here and now he's saying that the wickedness that they they dive into is if you live that way there's a very good chance that your life is going to end at a younger age in our world i mean this makes sense right Think of drug addicts, criminals, drunk drivers, all sorts of wickedness. We know that like, hey, you shouldn't do that. And if you do that, the, in, the odds of you dying young radically increase. That's why the preacher warns us to not be overly wicked or foolish. He says, why should you die before your time? Okay, so here where we are so far. On one hand, we can wrongly respond to life's complexities by trying to be super righteous, by looking to our own efforts to save us. But he said that leads to destruction. Or we can just throw up our hands and say, what's the point? And just go full steam into unrighteousness. But that way leads only to death. So neither of these get us where we need to go. So what's the right path? If those responses are both deep cliffs, we can tumble to our destruction. What's the only path that will deliver us from both dangers? Look at verse 18. It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand. For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. He's saying the road to real righteousness, that bridge that gets us across these two dangers, is fearing God. He says we're told to keep a hold of both things he just told us. He says it kind of confusingly and poetically there, but what he's saying is hold on to this and don't let go of that. What's he talking about? He's saying hold on to the fact that you shouldn't look to your own righteousness and don't let go of the fact that you can't just dive into wickedness. Instead, fear God. Submit yourself to him as the creator and king. Trust him that he is good and he is in control. He says, this is the only way you can live in this paradoxical world. We trust this is the day that the Lord has made. No matter what it holds, no matter whether it makes sense to us, no matter if it feels unfair, we know that God is good and upright. So we trust the judge of all the earth to always and only do what is right we depend on him and we fear him but now let's go back to this idea of righteousness because we said the road of righteousness what about that if we want to be right with God and know him we need to be righteous that's the qualification that's what you have to have so it raises the question how does that happen the answer is not by our own righteousness but only through Jesus. And when Jesus died, he died to rescue us from both self-righteousness and unrighteousness. He died for all the times and all the ways we try to be good enough on our own instead of looking to his perfect record of righteousness and he died for all the times and all the ways, we say forget it and just jump on into that sin. God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. In other words, Christ paid for all the wicked stuff we've thought and said and done, but that's not all. And in Christ, God made us to be the righteousness of God. His perfect record of fearing God is now counted as ours if we are trusting in Jesus. So when we stand before God as that judge, our hope is not that I'm going to pass the test because I've been wise enough or I've been good enough. Our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And when we run to Jesus and when we collapse into his arms by faith, we have confidence that we will be dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. So friends, I want you to ask yourself this morning, which danger are you more tempted to? Are you more tempted to self-righteousness or unrighteousness? Tempted to trying harder to be good or not really trying that hard to be good at all? Whichever it is, the invitation is the same. Come to Jesus and rest in him. The good news of Christianity is that the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe. So come believe. That's our first point. So in the first section, the preacher showed us the road to real righteousness is the fear of God. Now in verses 19 to 24, he's going to show us the real wisdom of recognizing our need. Now earlier, he just told us a minute ago to not make ourselves too wise, right? What he meant there is making sure that like we don't look wise in our own eyes. But now he wants to make sure that we didn't misunderstand He wants to show us there is real value in being truly wise. So look at verse 19. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. Now this is a different time, a different place. So when he talks about the ruler of a city, don't picture a mayor. Picture a king. Picture a strong king. Now when he says ten rulers, he probably chooses ten because that's the number of fullness, of completion. So he's saying, this city is super strong. It's completely strong. But then he says, but you know what? Wisdom gives more strength than even the super strong get. So, in other words, wisdom is good. Proverbs 8 says, wisdom is better than jewels. And all that we desire cannot compare with wisdom. Wisdom can give us strength to be faithful to God and to guide our thinking and our words. But, that's verse 19, but then lest, lest we run ahead of ourselves and think, okay, well, wisdom can make me righteous. If I can just get enough wisdom, I'll be right with God. In verse 20, the preacher drops a bombshell on that. Look there, he says, surely... There is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Friends, this is the worst news there is. If you came in thinking that you were a decent human being, like, I, I'm not the best, but I'm, I'm okay, I'm good. He says, there's not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. And remember, righteousness is the only criteria we need To make us right with God. So in other words, this verse is saying we're all disqualified. There's not one person on earth who is good enough to be considered righteous. Not even the wisest person. I want you to notice the preacher covers both what we do and what we fail to do. When there are good things that we're supposed to do, like love the Lord your God with all your heart, but we don't do those, The fancy word for that is those are called sins of omission. We omitted something we should have done. On the other hand, when there are bad things that we should not do, but we do them anyway, those are called sins of commission. We committed a sin. And the preacher says we're all guilty of both. He says there's not a righteous man who does good, so there's good that every one of us fails to do. And there's not a righteous man who never sins. That means that we all do the stuff we shouldn't. Paul's going to quote this verse in Romans 3.10 where he says, None is righteous, no, not one. The point made over and over again through scripture is that none of us is righteous on our own. All of us need Here's where the point comes from. All of us need a righteousness given to us. Now, in case we don't believe him, we say, I don't know, really? The preacher says, okay, let me give you an example. So he gives us an example of just one way we're all unrighteous. Look at verse 21. He says, do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others so first he's given us some advice he's saying look don't pay attention to everything you hear people say about you if you do sooner or later you're gonna hear someone say something bad about you if you're always listening what do they think about me what do they think about me newsflash not everybody is your biggest fan (laughs) Anybody says before, so don't don't get bent out of shape about it, he says. And you say, well, why not? Why shouldn't I be upset? He says, don't forget, your heart knows you've done the same thing. You know you've criticized someone unfairly. You know you've lost your temper and said something you shouldn't have said. The point he's making is that none of us is always righteous with our words. And that's just one example of how we're all sinful. So now that he's established that, in verses 23 and 24, he says, let me go back to wisdom for a minute. He says, all this I've tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise. But it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? His point here is simply, look, I've tried to use wisdom to figure all of this out. Now, particularly the problem we started with back in 15, about the righteous dying young and the wicked living long, but all this other stuff. He says, I've tried to use wisdom. And while he was able to give us some wise advice in the verses we just covered about how to live in light of life's paradoxes, he says, yeah, okay, I got that. But you know what? I still want to know why. I want to know why things are that way. But as he wondered that, he quickly realized his own limitations. Because ultimate wisdom, he says, is beyond our grasp. He says it's both too far away, horizontally. It's like the other side of the world. He's like, I can't reach out and get it. But it's also too too deep, vertically. The bottom of the ocean. So who can find it out? The answer implied is only God. Only one who can find out true wisdom is the one who says, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours and my thoughts than yours. The one of whom Romans 11 says, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. So not only do we all need righteousness, we all need real wisdom. So where can we find that real wisdom? Should come as no surprise that the answer is only in Christ. 1 Corinthians 1 says, Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly, hear that, foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom. He's saying Christ crucified is where we find the wisdom of God. Now, it looks like foolishness to the rest of the world. They say, you're worshiping a guy who died 2,000 years ago. And we say, yeah, but that's not the end of the story. And he says, that is where wisdom is actually found. So what we've seen in verses 19 to 24 is that all of us need righteousness, And all of us need wisdom. We don't have either on our own. But the good news for all who belong to God by faith is what 1 Corinthians 1 goes on to say after that. It says, and because of him, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. We needed both. And he says, guess what? Jesus is our wisdom and Jesus is our righteousness. We don't trust our best efforts to be good enough. We trust Jesus' perfect life and death in our place. We don't trust our own wisdom to figure out life and know what's best. We trust our shepherd Jesus in his word to lead us and guide us because he is everything we need. He's our righteousness, our wisdom, our sanctification, and our redemption. It's all bound up in Jesus. Which brings us to our last section. In verses 25 to 29, even though he just told us, man, I've tried to find this stuff and I, it's beyond my grasp, He's like, I'm not ready to give up my quest for wisdom. Look at verse 25. I turned my heart to know and to search and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things. And to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. So he says, all right, I'm still on my quest and I'm looking for two things. One, he wants to know a kind of wisdom that makes sense of all of reality. How does everything fit together? That's what he's, when it says the scheme of things, it's kind of like nowadays there's a thing in physics called the theory of everything that is literally, it wants to know how everything in existence is connected and related to one another. So the preacher here is like, yeah, me too. I want to know, what is life? How does it work? How does it all connect? What's it all about? That's one thing he wants to know. Second, he wants to know the opposite of wisdom. In other words, the wickedness of folly. He wants to understand, why does wickedness exist? And how does that fit into this overall scheme of things? You know, just like a little light Sunday afternoon reading for him, like, oh, why is there wickedness in the world? He's just t- tackling these questions. And as he searches for these answers, he finds four things. You're going to see that word, I found, I found, I found. So let's look at verse 26 to see the first thing he found. He said, and I find something more bitter than death, the woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. Now, this is a difficult passage to understand. But here's what I think the preacher is saying he found. He found that wicked foolishness is very seductive. See, I don't think he's talking about women in general here, or even a particular woman that he knew. I think the woman he's referring to is a personification of foolishness. This is the same thing Solomon does in the book of Proverbs. He characterizes both wisdom and folly as two different women. If you read through the book of Proverbs, you'll see these two characters, Lady Wisdom and Lady Folly. And throughout Proverbs, folly or foolishness is portrayed as a seductive adulteress, always trying to lure us away from the path of righteousness. And so what we see both in Proverbs and here in verse 26 is that this lady folly, she's a hunter. She goes after her victims, enticing them into her trap. And then once they're in there, not letting them escape. Here's how Proverbs 7 describes her entrapment. It says, with much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. All at once, he follows her. As an ox goes to the slaughter, he does not know it will cost him his life. He's telling us that's what sin is like. It seduces us with smooth talk, making itself seem so desirable, making you say, oh, wouldn't you like to have that? Don't you want to do that? It persuades us that you've got to have that. But when we give in and follow it, we find ourselves trapped and eventually destroyed. But there's good news in this verse. The good news is there is a way out. Notice that not everybody is lured into folly's trap. Look back at verse 26. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. So those who please God escape. They don't fall into the trap. Who are those who please God? Hebrews 11 tells us, without faith, it is impossible to please God. So who are those who please God? Those who trust him. And for those who do, we have his promise that God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. In other words, friends, if you are a follower of Jesus, because you are in him, we don't have to give in to the seduction of sin. It'll still speak its smooth, seductive words. It will still tickle your ears with temptation. But you do not have to listen because sin no longer has dominion over us. But the first thing the preacher found as he's looking for how how to make sense of the world is he sees that wicked foolishness is oh so very seductive. second thing he found is in verse 27 and 28. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. So the second thing he found was that when he tried adding up everything he saw to make sense of it all, what he found was that it didn't add up. What he found was that he couldn't find the answer he was looking for. He says, here's what I found. I didn't find it. He says, I, I, I can't, I, I took this and this and this and like I'm a good accountant, I added it all up and then the calculator just broke. He's like, well, that doesn't compute. That's the second thing he finds, that he, he can't make sense of it third thing he found go back to verse 28 one man among a thousand i found but a woman among all these i have not found so now it's not clear right away what he's looking for here but if we use the context what it seems like he's looking for is a righteous person he says, i'm on the hunt for a righteous person now i don't want you to read too much into this well he found one man but no woman. most likely they think he's quoting a proverb that already existed or he's just phrasing it in a proverbial way because if you think about it we already know from verse 20 he said there is no one righteous uh, he levels the playing field this is not saying like oh well, there's one righteous man because the point here is not that 0.1 percent of all men are righteous which still is not really something to write home about while no women are the point is is that as he looks around at the world he's saying oh wow I can't really find righteous people. They seem to be lacking. That's his point. Then in verse 29, we come to his main and most important finding. He says, See, this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. Notice that word alone. That's how I'm, why I'm saying the main and most important. He's saying, look, I found this, I found this, I found this. But the, the, the one thing I found, the real important thing I found, is that God made man upright. In other words, he says, God is not to be blamed for the wickedness we see in the world. He made us very good. He made us upright. Which leads to the question, well then, so What happened? He made us upright, but we look around, and he says, I can't find any upright people. So what happened? He says, we sought out many schemes. Now, there's a wordplay he's doing here that's hard to pick up. Think The closest we can do in English is think like this. He's been saying, I'm trying to find out the scheme of all things. I want to know the scheme of all things. And here's what I found, is that we're all just a bunch of schemers. That's the scheme of things. And we know this, the Bible testifies to this, that in the garden, in the beginning, we schemed a way to try to be wise apart from God. When Eve saw that fruit and she saw that it was pleasing to the eye and good for food and desires to make one wise, she's like, I want some of that. We tried to define our own righteousness apart from God. I want to be the one to know good and evil and say which is which. But it didn't stop in the garden. Keep flipping through your Bible. You get to Genesis 6. What do we see? The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of his heart was only evil continually. Every intention. He's constantly scheming evil, scheming evil, scheming evil. Flip a couple more pages. You get to Babel. We try to make a name for ourselves apart from God. Look what we can do in all of our wisdom. And friends, we've been doing it ever since If you want to know the real problem of the world, it's us. It's you and it's me. We and our sin are the problem. Now the passage ends there, and that would be a bleak note to end on. But here's the good news. God has a scheme too. An eternal scheme to save for himself a people. From every tribe and language and people and nation. The Bible tells us that in this scheme, He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. And when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that He might redeem those who were under the law and give us adoption as sons. He saved us and called us to a holy calling not because of our works but because of his own purpose and grace which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began in which he brought and manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel that's his scheme. And that scheme has won, and that scheme is winning. And God's scheme is enough to turn over our own wicked schemes and make sinners like you and me righteous. That is the best news in the world, friends. You can be qualified to know and be with God, not because you got your act together, but because he saved you. And that is exactly what we celebrate at this table. So in a moment, we're going to take the Lord's Supper. And before I forget, I'm going to go ahead and invite the servers to come up because I might lose myself in a minute. But what we celebrate at this table is that this table is not someplace where there's a gatekeeper and they're checking your resume to see how many times have you been to church, how many times have you read your Bible, are you a good enough person. The only qualification that makes you worthy to come to this table is that you say, Jesus paid it all. He is the only reason I have access to this table. It's not by my righteousness, but His. So our only hope of righteousness is not in me, but only Him. So friends, if you're here and that is your hope, if you're here and you don't believe that, let me just encourage you, don't come take this because that's just one more empty thing that you're trying to add to a resume that doesn't mean anything. So don't waste your time. Instead, we don't want you to take communion we want you to take Christ take him wrestle with your heart and say God I don't want to trust my own efforts I don't want to trust my wisdom I want yours found in Jesus so friends if you're here and that is you you are trusting in the Lord Jesus as your only hope of righteousness we invite you to feast with us so what we're going to do is in a minute we're going to sing a song and as the song is playing there will be servers on both sides just come on forward Take each element back to your seat with you and sing along with us. And then once the song is done, I will come back and lead us in taking the supper together. So let me pray and then we will sing and celebrate. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this table. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you that when we could not be good enough, he was. And thank you that even though he knew no sin, you made him to be our sin. To die in our place so that we might be forgiven. And not only that, you counted his perfect righteousness as ours. So God, as we come to this table, would we look not to ourselves and say, how well have I been doing? But would our eyes wander upward to your son And see him there who made an end to all my sin. Thank you for him. Thank you for his body and blood. And thank you for this church family that we now get to celebrate that truth together. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.